Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. Are you ready to unlock the full potential and growth in your business? You've already crossed seven figures in sales, but the challenge is knowing how to take your business to the next level. Join Josh Hadley, an eight-figure e-com business owner and investor, as he interviews highly successful business owners. Get ready, because you're going to learn specific actions you can take today to help your business reach its full potential and leave a lasting impact on the world. Welcome to the Ecom Breakthrough Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Hadley, where I interview the top business leaders in e-commerce. Past guests include Kevin King, Howard Tai and Steve Simonson. Today I'm speaking with Nathan Resnick of Sourceify, and we will be talking a lot about sourcing products and supply chain. This episode is brought to you by Ecom Breakthrough Consulting, where I help seven-figure companies grow to eight figures and beyond. Listen, Nathan, I started my brand back in 2015, and we grew it to an eight-figure brand in eight years, but I made a lot of mistakes along the way that made the path of getting to seven to eight figures take a little bit longer than it really needed to. There were times where I doubted myself as a leader or I was having financial issues or cash flow management issues or having the ability to lead a team and establish a management team for our business. So for any of our listeners that have ran into similar plateaus and want to know the next steps to help take their business to the next level, then go to ecombreakthrough.com that's ecom with two M's to learn more. And as a special bonus to my podcast listeners, this month I'm giving away one $10,000 comprehensive business strategy audit session at no cost. All you need to do is email me at josh at ecombreakthrough.com and in your subject line say strategy audit and then tell me why I should choose your brand to work with for that strategy audit session. And don't worry if you don't win this month, you'll be entered to win for future months to come. But today, I am super excited to introduce you all to Nathan Resnick. Nathan is the founder of Sourceify, the fastest growing sourcing platform backed by Y Combinator that helps hundreds of companies manufacture products around the world. In the past, Nathan has brought dozens of products to market, ran three e-commerce companies, he's even sold one of them, and has been part of projects on Kickstarter raising over seven figures. He writes for media outlets like Entrepreneur, the next web, business.com, and can frequently be seen on CNBC. Nathan also used to live in China, and he speaks Mandarin fluently. When he's not in a factory or selling software, he can be found mountain biking, sailing, skiing, fishing, or hiking. So with that introduction, welcome to the show, Nathan. Josh, thanks so much for having me on. Well, I'm super excited to be speaking with you today. You've got an extensive background in sourcing products, Obviously, you've lived in China, you live and breathe all of this stuff, and I'm also fascinated to learn, you know, why are you so frequently on CNBC? What are you talking <laughs> about there? And all of those fun business publications. But Nathan, why don't you give us a quick little background about yourself? You know, what has led you into creating Sourceify and where you are today? Yeah, totally. I mean, my kind of belief on life is that everything compounds, right? And so my kind of start in supply chain actually starts as a foreign exchange student in China when I was 15 years old. So I lived with a host family, attended a local Chinese high school. Um, and that year when I was 15 to 16, just became so fascinated in how products were made. And so there was all those, you know, uh, markets outside of Beijing, like the silk market and pearl market. And uh, when I was 15, I started just buying products and um, selling them on eBay and Amazon. And that kind of was my first steps into e-com. And this was kind of the early days where, you know, there wasn't um, as, much, as much scrutiny around selling, you know, uh, what was fake products, honestly, online. And so uh, I, I started off when I was 15 years old, just selling products online and soon realized um, I needed to create my own brands to have sustainability in e-commerce. So I built a watch brand called Yes Man Watches. I had uh, a backpack brand, sunglasses brand, and, you know, really was focused around fashion accessories. And by the time I was 19, I was doing $600,000 online, which to me, I was like, wow, you know, I made it. I uh, remember calling my mom and saying, I'm dropping out of college. And, you know, she was so, uh, she valued education so highly that I stayed in school. And, you know, as my own brands grew, people would always ask me, how do you source products in China? And so when I graduated, um, ended up selling 
that e-commerce brand and, you know, just started focusing on that problem of helping other companies source products in China. And so that's when Sourcefy started in uh, 2017. And, you know, we now have four offices in Asia, China, Vietnam, India, and Pakistan, and help a lot of e-commerce brands source products uh, across Asia. That's amazing. Well, obviously, you've got a lot of deep experience here because you lived and breathed it. You know, in reality, you lived in China. Um, you saw how things were getting made. And I, I love that. Like from a young age, like you were actually creating products and selling them, had a very successful business while going through college. And so uh, I'm super excited to hear all the ins and outs that you've learned, especially since you lived in China and you understand a little bit more about that culture and, and how what you have been able to learn can apply and help our listeners that are trying to take their brands from seven figures, they are already established to eight figures and beyond. And what are the, the sourcing tips and, that they need to understand? Because here, there's one thing about supply chain and product sourcing that, you know, may be a common myth is that, hey, I already got this started. And we, we've already got an existing relationship with the manufacturer. Like it's on autopilot. I don't need to spend any more time and attention on it. Mm -hmm. And Nathan, I'm sure you'll, you'll help kind of dispel that myth that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that's not necessarily the case. If you want to scale your brand, there are things that you're going to need to pay attention to as it relates to supply chain and sourcing your product. So maybe we could begin there, Nathan. Like what are some of those tips and strategies and experience that you've been able to gain that require people to continue working on their sourcing and supply chain to be able to scale their business to eight figures yeah. and beyond. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's kind of three main components that I like to look at when thinking of a seven figure seller that's now trying to get to eight figures. I think number one is around cash conversion cycle. And that's more so focused on payment terms, right? Of you know, when you're starting out as a e-commerce brand, typically you're paying kind of 30% down, 70% before shipment, which is totally standard. But as you grow, you should start being able, to, being able to pay some of that balance on net 30 or net 60 terms. And eventually your goal is to get everything on, you know, net 30 or net 60 terms. So the simplest way to explain cash conversion cycle is basically, can you sell your product before you have to pay for it? Meaning can, you know, your customers have your product and pay for your products before you have to pay your supplier for it. Um, most brands, that is not the case. But if you look at some of the fastest growing brands in the world, like Gymshark, they really were able to grow based on their cash conversion cycle. So um, I would Google just Gymshark cash conversion cycle. There's some really cool case studies around how they were able to do this and, and really fuel growth. But you know, if you're a brand, I think Number one, as your POs grow, you should always be negotiating your payment terms. So ask yourself, when's the last time I negotiated my payment terms? Um, and, and number two, you know, if your factory isn't willing to you know, give you payment terms and you believe this is the best factory for you, can you work with a third party um, that would finance your, your purchase order? So that's another you know, potential uh, outlook to improve your cash conversion cycle. Number two, I would say is, is really just around you know, renegotiating the unit unit price. That's something we really focus on at Sourcefy is just, you know, our goal with any customer we work with is to improve their unit margin, their product margin by at least 10%. So, you know, if you're paying $10 for your product right now, you know, we're going to get you down to $9 or lower. The way that we typically do that is a lot of brands, they, you know, when they start, they're just on Alibaba searching for a factory and they're, you know, have a higher baseline of a price they should be, pay, be, be paying for their product. But when they actually you know, go in and, and, and start scaling up their POs and placing larger POs. It's a matter of how do you now, you know, lower that price. And most of the time that means, you know, working with another factory, which can take some time to transition production. But if it's going to save you 10, 20, 30%, it's going to, you know, obviously make a huge difference in your bottom line. And number three is something that I've been, you know, more and more interested in is actually section three, two, one, where you warehouse some of your products in Mexico. You know, there's a lot of providers um, outside of Tijuana and Tecate, like XB Fulfillment or Baja Fulfillment that do a great job on this. And for Amazon sellers, I think a lot of times this is overlooked. But at the same time, if you can offset some of your, you know, duty and tariff costs by warehousing in Mexico and bringing them in uh, as you need product, it means that you don't have to pay that, you know, tariff and duty costs right up front in one, you know, big gulp. So. I think that's um, kind of the three main factors I look at for brands from a supply chain perspective of how do you actually, 
you know, use your supply chain as a strength to improve your lot, bottom line, improve your margins, and also improve your cash flow. Yeah, man, Nathan, you, you dropped a lot of value real quick with those three, you know, points that you, you talked about there. Um, one of the important things for people to understand is, you know, your supply chain has a direct impact on the bottom line of your business. And honestly, just as Nathan, you know, really did a great job of eloquently laying out the importance of those that cash conversion cycle. You want to talk about something that's going to allow your brand to exponentially grow um, that cash conversion cycle and getting payment terms with your manufacturers is going to be like one of the holy grails that you need to be striving towards, um, you know, because it, it's not requiring you to give up equity of your business. It's not requiring you to go pay exorbitant interest rates, um, you know, from external capital partners. Right. And we all get pitched, you know, capital pitches all the time. It seems like, and Amazon's always willing to lend us money, but at decently high interest rates, sometimes they're up to eight, nine, even 10% now. Imagine if you could have a 0% interest rate, that's effectively what can change as you, you know, change things with your cash conversion cycle with your man, your manufacturing partner. So Nathan, if you don't mind, let's, let's dig deeper into that one to begin with. Um, because I'm sure with your experience, you have probably some good negotiation tactics. Um, you've probably have a few case studies of people that you've helped, um, navigate getting ba better payment terms with their manufacturer. So would you mind just kind of diving in and sharing more there? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think first off, you got to understand how valuable your business is to your factory, right? So I would do that by really trying to understand, you know, you make up most of their production output, you know, of all the factories production volume that you work with, what percentage are you? Is it 30%, 10%, 50%, 80%, you know, what it, what is it? And then you kind of understand where you're at from a negotiation position, right? Because if you're a brand that makes up the majority of a factory's output, Obviously, you have a much stronger lever to pull. If you're uh, a, a kind of minority customer for them or a smaller customer for them, then you know maybe that's not even the right factory for you to be working with because you don't have as strong a lever to pull. So I think you know number one, you've got to see eye to eye, to eye with them in terms of forecasting and helping them better understand. Well, hey, you know this year this is how many units I'm planning to produce and and. I think there's a big disconnect between supply chain teams and factories when it comes to forecasting, because a lot of supply chain team members don't understand, or a lot of brand owners don't understand, you know, that factory has to go purchase raw materials to produce your products as well. So they have their own cash flow challenges when it comes to, you know, uh, making sure they have enough factory workers to produce your product, making sure they have the raw materials to produce your product, and then they aren't getting paid, you know, uh, for 30 or 60 days to produce your product if you're negotiating your terms well. And so you've got to understand it from their standpoint as well of, you know, hey, how is this going to help their factory grow? Because it can also put them in a cash flow uh, position, which is challenging. And so that's something you need to be aware of when you go into ne your negotiations. So I think, number one, I would just make sure you're seeing eye to eye with that factory that you're working with to understand, you know, how big of a customer am I for them? You know, what does their cash flow look like? And have I done a good job making sure they understand my forecast? And that's when I would go into the negotiation of saying, hey, you know, we're trying to grow and to grow, we need more, you know, cash flow to scale up our ads to get more customers. Right. And so that's how I would approach it. Um, I think if you're a brand that is, you know, a smaller customer, like sub 10 percent of a factory's output, it's going to be really hard for you to, to negotiate that. And honestly, in that position, I might actually, you know, kind of take my option too of, you know, trying to ask yourself, am I the best customer for this factory? And can I find a factory where I'm, you know, a much larger customer that I can grow with more? Um, so that's, that's another kind of question that I would ask of uh, trying to understand, like, if you already know you're a small customer for this factory, are they even the right factory for you? Um, and then, Nathan, you know, it's just some real quick before you continue on that. My question would be on that. How do you have that conversation to say, Hey, by the way, how much uh, of your business do I make up, right? Like that could be an awkward conversation to have with somebody. So how do you find out that information? Yeah, I mean, it's easiest to do with boots on the ground, right? So if you can have your own team that can go to the factory, that's great. Or, you know, hire a company like Sourcefy to help understand or 
look at their audits, you know, say, hey, we need a financial audit of your factory to sell into, you know, X retailer or whatever it may be. You can get some financial information through an audit that's been mm -hmm. conducted on that factory. And so those are kind of the main ways that I look at it. But um, I would also just try to build a relationship with the sales rep or project manager that you're working with at that factory and help understand like, hey, you know, who else are you working with? What else are you producing? You know, are we a big or small customer for you? I mean, just ask these questions, like simple questions, but for whatever reason, a lot of owners or a lot of brand, you know, founders don't, don't ask. Um, and especially as they grow, you know, they become more focused on growing top line and kind of overlook, well, to grow top line, you know, your cash conversion cycle is such a key component of that. Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those are great insights. So we'll, we'll clue you back into where, where I interrupted you on. But I think that is an important thing. And, and also, like, just creating a good relationship with your manufacturing partner is, like, probably the number one takeaway there, right? Not just seeing them as, like, somebody that I just shoot a quick email to and, mm -hmm. and say, hey, can I need to place another order. Like, we're talking about building a deeper relationship here and, and right. seeing your manufacturing partners as just what I said, a partner in your business. Right. Um, because they truly are. Yeah. And that's, that's so vital too, with, you know, kind of guanxi and the whole, you know, there's literally a term in the Chinese language in Mandarin of, you know, guanxi, and it's just the kind of business relationship that you have. And I think that is the essence of doing business in China. And, you know, I think a lot of people say that, but at the end of the day, especially in times of the past, you know, three years when we had COVID and very few people were going back and forth, it was hard to build a relationship with your factory. And so I think you know, now if you have the opportunity to travel back and, you know, meet them and show that you care and show that they're, you know, a vital part of your business, it can mean even more for them to, you know, continue to grow with you. Um, and I think that, you know, like you said, it's such an important factor of your business is how do you have more transparency with your factory? And I think one of the best ways to do that is, is you know, being more transparent in regards to forecasting. Very good insight. Do you have any examples or case studies? Um, that you could share of maybe brands that you've been able to help and what type of terms they've been able to get from their manufacturing partners, just to give people some ideas of like, here's the potential that's out there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the, you know, brands we work with at SourceFi is Jackson. They're a big men's jewelry brand. You know, I can, I mean, they publicly said it, they were Forbes 30 under 30, I think last year, the year before, and they did 70 million in revenue. So just a impressive, really impressive brand. And their jewelry is, just incredible if you go to jackson.com. So, you know, we did two things for them. Number one is cut costs. You know, we really improved their margin across all SKUs. And we did that just by, you know, working with better factories than they already had. Because when they started the brand, you know, they just had a higher baseline than what they should be paying for the jewelry. And as they scaled up to the, you know, multi-eight-figure range, there was, you know, obviously a lot uh, of opportunity to, to cut costs. And number two is better payment terms. You know, as we started placing bigger POs and working with them to, you know, place bigger POs. We, you know, told the factories in order to unlock growth, you know, we need better payment terms here. We can't be paying everything before it's shipped. And so they've unlocked, you know, uh, net 30 and even net 60 terms on some of their items. And so, you know, I think that took time, you know, we've been working with them now for three and a half, four years or so. Um, so it's not something that happens overnight, but, you know, something that I definitely would keep a pulse on as a brand founder, as you continue to grow is, you know, how do I get better payment terms for my factory? Um, and the best way to do that is kind of like what you mentioned, Josh, is really seeing eye to eye to them and making, you know, your factory a real partner in your business um, and, and making sure that they're aware of, you know, hey, in order to, to grow, in order to place bigger orders, we need better payment terms because otherwise, you know, we don't have the cash to, to spend on marketing. Makes a lot of sense. So when you talk about, you know, net 30 and net 60 days, um, does that mean you have received the prot? Like when does that net 30 days, you know, start? Is it, it, the it starts from the time it's the time it's delivered to the warehouse. Okay. In the U S yeah. or wherever yeah. the final destination. Yeah. Yeah. So there's different terms. I mean, it could be from the time that it's, you know, leaving the factory or the time that it's, you know, arrived at the warehouse. Um, you know, definitely something you should specify with your factory, of course. But I mean, the best bet is obviously, from the time that it arrives at your own warehouse. I mean, a lot of factories might give you, you know, to the time it uh, arrives at the port or time it's shipped, but, you know, getting a container from China, uh, especially during COVID, I mean, that was, timelines were crazy, but, 
you know, now yeah, fortunately they've, they've, they've gone down quite a bit so you can get a container a lot quicker. But at the end of the day, you know, obviously the, the farther you can stretch to that out, the better. What are some just maybe some creative payment terms that you've seen amongst all of the different companies that you've worked with? Just to throw out some ideas of, yeah, hey, here's some creative like payment structures I've seen. So probably one of the most creative is I've seen a brand just do like a flat monthly payment every month. They're saying, hey, okay, we know we're going to order, you know, a million dollars of product this year. And every month we're going to pay you, you know, $83,000 for that product. So they committed to the factory saying, hey, we're going to order, we, we forecast we're going to order a million bucks of product. Every month we're just going to pay you that same amount. And some months that's great. Some months that sucks for the business. But at the end of the day, it's just very consistent. And it doesn't matter, you know, how many POs they're placing or how many products are actually being produced uh, that month. It's almost like the factory's giving you a flat, you know, mortgage on your business from a from a product standpoint, right? So you know you're paying, you know, the same balance every month. That's one unique way. Another one is just, you know, breaking down the figures in regards to whatever works best for your business, right? At the end of the day, you're gonna have to pay a factory 100% of the balance owed, whether it be 10% down and, you know, 20% upon production completion and another 20% when it, you know, hits your warehouse and then another, you know, 30% net 30 and then the remaining balance paid net 60, right? So, you know, I would just try to break down that 100% as much as you can. And um, though it may sound funny to break it down so much, at the end of the day, you know, the more you can get on longer payment terms, the better for your business, right? And so I think just making the factory comfortable and just being creative with ways that you're paying for your product is is a huge win. Awesome. Those those are some great ideas. I, I think that, you know, that mortgage payment, so to speak, the monthly payment is very interesting. And you can only get to that point if you are solid on your own demand planning, right? Which brings up right. the conversation of sharing that forecast as well with your team. Which also mm-hmm. just goes back to like, you know, the importance of having somebody on your team that's specifically focused on supply chain and demand planning and right. taking into account, you know, seasonality spikes and how we're bringing right. in product and when we are. There's so much that goes into it before you can even have this conversation of like, yeah, monthly payment makes sense for our business. So mm-hmm. don't immediately go out and change things, you know, first right. make sure you've got all your your ducks in a row uh, before totally. you start pulling triggers, right? Yeah. And I mean, like, like, you know, for most e-commerce brands, Q4 is obviously the biggest, right? And factories know that. And so, you know, maybe instead of doing a flat mortgage, you're saying, okay, well, hey, we're going to pay, you know, a smaller portion of that the first six months of the year and a greater portion of it the, the last six months of the year. I mean, I would just have an open mind going into a negotiation in regards to payment terms with your factory. And you know, factories can tell how your business is doing based on the order volume, right? So they've got a strong pulse on your business and um, hopefully your orders are growing with them and that's going to be a great avenue into negotiating your payment terms with them. Are there any negotiation tactics um, that you'd like to throw out or strategies that you would recommend as people work with their manufacturing partners? Um I think it depends on what you're trying to negotiate, right? Like if you're trying to negotiate price, the best way is to set your, you know, start with your baseline being set very low. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I mean, if it's a new factory, that's how I would start. Um, if it's your existing factory partner, then, you know, you know them best, you know how you interact with them best. Um, it's, it's a good question, but I mean, I, I mean, one example I remember is just in the markets when I was living in in China when I was 15 and 16 and even again when I was living in Guangzhou when I was you know 22 is just you know in those markets they start by saying oh these shoes are going to be you know 2500 RMB and I would immediately wipe 90% of whatever price they would tell me off the bat and say oh you know this vendor over here said they could do it for 250 RMB right and they're just like, what? You know, and it just starts the baseline uh, point much lower. And then, you know, hopefully you kind of work from the baseline up versus from their high price down. So I think that is a tactic that could be used for a new factory. Um, and then, you know, for an existing factory, I think it's just a matter of 
being more transparent in regards to, you know, how your business is, is doing your forecasting and also, you know, making sure the factory understands that, you know, the challenges that are involved in their business to produce your product, right? Because, you know, they have labor, they have, um, you know, their raw material costs, they have their building costs, they have electricity costs. I mean, they have so many costs associated with your product that for them to break down your product is, is, is really hard even to get a final price per unit. And so I would even ask them if you haven't before, it's surprising. Like a lot of brands don't ask like, what's the actual, like, you know, breakdown of my product that makes up this price per unit. And so if it's like, you know, let's say it's, um, let's just say it's this hat, for example, right? So you've got like the stitching, you've got the coloring, you've got the labor, you've got the electricity, you've got the facility costs. I mean, there's probably like, I don't know, at least a dozen, dozen and a half costs associated with this hat as an example. Um, and so having them actually break down the cost to get to your price per unit is I think a great um, negotiation avenue for your existing factory as well, because it's surprising, right? So many brands don't even like, ask like oh what actually gets me to that price per unit that you're giving me yeah yeah what those are some great strategies and i think going back to what you you spoke about earlier that kind of price anchoring or just anchoring in general is a very powerful negotiation tactic now you yep. want to be cautious when using it because they people could completely disregard you and be like you're ridiculous yeah. <laughs> you or yeah. You know, it could it it needs to be semi realistic, right? Right. Um, right. To, to show that you're you're in the ballpark, you you understand, yeah. like okay, uh, like this person's knowledgeable. That right. sounds like a, a okay. Somebody may be right. willing to do that, but that's a heck yeah. of a deal. And and Josh, that's definitely the right that's definitely the right term right. for it is price anchoring. You uh you you have the right you know description for the tactic, so that's awesome. Um yeah, so. Yeah, it, but use it with caution. That doesn't just mean like I should be paying five cents with profit. Right, just right, you totally. Want to pay for it, you, mm -hmm. you need to be knowledgeable and show like, hey, yeah, you understand. And and the same thing applies, I think, for your payment terms. Right, mm -hmm. start high. Be you know, you could even throw out, hey, so I know you know I'm in a mastermind group, and I've got some of my other business partners that have 180 day net payment terms. That's right. what I would like to get towards. Right. And then they're probably like, oh, my goodness. Like, right. I don't know that we could get there. But then yeah. when you settle at maybe 60 day net terms. Right. They are happy because they're like, oh, man, like I can't imagine totally. 180 day terms. Your yeah. end goal was 60 days anyways. Right. But you you set this kind of anchor at a, at right. a higher point. So Yeah. I mean, that's that's exactly what you know, even the big, big brands do, right? Like at SourceFi, we've worked with Amheuser-Busch quite a bit and Amheuser-Busch, like their payment terms are net 180. Like it's insane. Mm. You you literally, as a supplier for Amheuser-Busch, you know, their starting point is net 180, that's it. And so they have the buying power, right? And they have, you know, the credibility, which makes them able to to go to their suppliers and say, hey, we only pay net 180, but you know, yeah. for uh smaller e-commerce brand it sounds like outrageous to to say that to a supplier but that's literally what these you know fortune 500s are doing is just going to suppliers and saying hey you know we're amheiser bush we only take net 180 and if you want to work with us and get our po's then net 180 is what it is and it's it's um how they operate and how they work and you know sometimes you can get around it in different ways but the other option too you know when you're working with a fortune 500 or fortune 1000 is you know you can often finance their po's which a lot of factories do too mm -hmm. but um you know think of yourself as a fortune 1000 and take that negotiation position right yeah yep so there there you, you've now heard it right 180 days is realistic it is in the realm of possibilities maybe use that as as your anchor so to speak so yeah uh nathan this is great let's let's pivot now to product costs so why is it so important if somebody's scaling up to go back and revisit their product costs? Maybe they thought they originally got a great deal when they found somebody off of Alibaba. Right. What should they be doing now? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think when someone starts an e-commerce brand, right, like their first PO is anywhere from 10000 to you know $50,000, right? It's not a lot of money for a factory. And most of the time when they produce that first production run, they're working with a smaller factory. And so if you've scaled up with that same factory, 
chances are the baseline price that you started to pay for your product is much higher than a similar brand that's spending you know a million dollars or so a year on that same product and so i think you have to go look at the landscape of factories and understand you know number one is this factory still the best fit for me even if you've now become you know their biggest customer they might have you know um, equipment that makes the price per unit higher um, they might not have, you know, the right technology. They might have not have the best negotiations with their raw material suppliers. I mean, there's a whole number of factories as to why that factory price that you're getting is higher than other factories. Um, it might be location. I mean, there's so many factories that go into it, right? But at the end of the day, I think every, you know, year or two years as you grow, because a lot of e-commerce brands, they're trying to grow you know, 50 to even, you know, two, 300% a year, right? I know a lot of brands during COVID that were growing two, 300% in a year. And, you know, to go to the same factory and produce, you know, two to three times more product and pay the same price uh, seems, you know, a bit crazy to me. And so I think, you know, every two years or so, you should go and do a factory analysis and understand, you know, is this the best price to pay for my product? And, you know, these changes in your supply chain don't happen overnight. But if, if there if there is a factory that says, hey, you know, I can produce this product for 10 or 20 percent less, it's worthwhile to, to place, you know, a test PO with them and say, hey, you know, we're spending a million dollars at factory A this year. You know, we'll spend a hundred thousand with you this year and start ramping you up and see if you can produce the same quality product for a better price. And if you can, we'll start transitioning more production to you. Um, and I think too, this goes into my belief that you should never be single sourced. So at the end of the day, if anything, this is going to help strengthen your supply chain because then you know you have a backup factory that can produce your product in case something happens with your primary factory. Yeah, that that's a really important takeaway there. I mean, what horror stories have you seen from people that only have a single factory? Oh, I mean, so many. I mean, so many just situations that either were out of a customer's control, whether it be, um, you know, anything from a fire at a factory or labor shortages or the factory being, you know, shut down by the government to, you know, just them completely screwing up lead times and then missing a deadline for, you know, a big box customer. Right. And so there's so many stories that I could tell around why you should never be single sourced, but, uh, at the end of the day, you know, as you ramp up, there's so much to focus on in your e-commerce brand that a lot of, you know, founders and a lot of supply chain teams just get so caught up in their one factory that they forget to have a backup plan. And especially as they launch new products, they, you know, it's a lot of work to have multiple factories that can produce that same product. Right. And so, um, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's more work to do, but it's completely worthwhile, especially when something goes wrong with that primary factory and you've got deadlines to meet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a great anecdote. And so, Nathan, the next question is like, so how do you balance between wanting to be somebody's primary, you know, customer and sending as much of your business to them as possible so that you are their largest customer, ideally, versus, hey, I want to have a backup option. You know, what is it? You're sending them maybe 10% of your orders, but then maybe you're paying a higher cost of goods over there. Et cetera. Well, so, I mean, that's a, it's a juggling act. Tell, tell me how yeah. you think that, right? Yeah. I mean, I think for your backup supplier, it doesn't mean that you have to like place, you know, 10% of your volume to them or even 5%. It's just that, Hey, I know this factory can produce this product in case something happens to my primary factory. Okay. Right. So I'm not saying you constantly have to produce product there. It's just something that, you know, as you do a cost analysis for your, your supply chain this year, you should understand, okay, you know, I now know that this factory over here can produce my product for a price that is, you know, a little bit higher, but, or even if it's a little bit less, right? Like at Sourcefy, we found that the threshold to change factories in terms of the work that's required is you need to be saving at least 10% of your unit cost to change factories. I mean, that's mm. really when it becomes worthwhile. So, you know, if you're going from paying $100 for your product to $90 for your product, that's a significant difference. Um, and so we think 10% uh, from our data just shows that it's, it's really worthwhile to make that switch. You know, if you're saving three or five or 7%, you know, sometimes it's, it's not worthwhile, especially as you have, you know, most of the time built a really strong relationship with that primary factory. But 
if you know this new factory can save you at least 10 percent uh then often it's worthwhile and that switch doesn't happen overnight like i described right you're starting to place you know 10 percent and 25 percent and eventually gradually moving it over but um you know at the end of the day it's definitely a, a threshold you need to be aware of and something you need to keep in mind yeah no that makes a lot of sense so Nathan, where is somebody to begin, you know, if they, maybe they launched their business three years ago, they're doing more than seven figures now, they've never, you know, touched the the product price ever again, they're just working with that same manufacturer, where do they begin to go back out, you know, getting quotes from the market again to see what uh, another competitive quote might be? Yeah, I mean, the best is, is you know, I got to plug ourselves here because that's literally what we do. And that's, you know, how we win business is just go to source, find, book a free sourcing consultation. I mean, we'll literally do a free price, you know, pricing your product analysis for you. We do all that work. All we need is samples and your existing factory name because we don't contact your existing factory because we don't want to, you know, get involved with that relationship what, whatsoever. Yeah. And so... I mean, that's the best bet. You could go have your supply chain team do it yourself. You know, if you've got boots on the ground in Asia, whether it be in China or whatnot, you know, a lot of those factories are located in the same city. So that's another angle. Or you could go on, you know, Alibaba or Global Sources and start doing, you know, the work yourself and doing the research yourself to, you know, get another uh, price quote for your product. So, you know, those are kind of the three main avenues. Um, I, I think a lot of times, I mean, what, what more and more people are realizing is like Alibaba and all these marketplaces is pay to play, right? Like if I Google or excuse me, if I search on Alibaba hat manufacturer, the hat manufacturer that's, you know, number one is paying Alibaba the most to be mm. this number one search result. Right. And so it's same with any marketplace. Um, and, you know, it's pay to play for suppliers on Alibaba and global sources. So, you know, just because they're ranked the highest doesn't mean that they're the best factory. I mean, I've literally been to, you know, some of the biggest factories I've ever seen in my life that weren't even on those marketplaces because they're working with, you know, big brands already that they have longstanding relationships with and they don't, you know, need to be or want to be on those marketplaces because even for most yeah. uh, factories on Alibaba, they know, you know, 90, 95% of those inquiries are going to be very small, you know, startup brands. That's not going to move the needle for them. Right. And they know, you know, with, with production, it's a big fish game, right? The more, products you produce, the more money you're going to make. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, there's so much that goes into sourcing products that ultimately I, th I think a good recommendation is like having somebody that has boots on the ground, whether that's mm -hmm. your own team, right. Or whether that's a, a third party like yourself, Sourceify, you mm -hmm. know, but somebody that's an expert in there. Right. And I yeah. think Alibaba can be a good start. But mm -hmm. don't see that as the end all be all there. There's so much like that's networking is so important. Right. And getting to know totally. the right people that can get you access to those factories that just like you mentioned, they're doing bigger volume, bigger stuff, yeah. better cogs, all of it. Um, but you don't get access to those unless you know the right people. Right. Yeah. And I mean, as part of that, one thing that I'll add that, like, it baffles me that brands don't do is like on every single production run you know, you should be doing a third party inspection and at least on uh, a few of them randomly. Right. And so many brands don't do this. And it's like literally just like, it's like simple insurance for your product. Right. And that can cost you only like two, 250 bucks, depending on who you use, you know, for all of our source five customers, we do that. Um, but there's a ton of, you know, QC companies like Chima or factored quality. I mean, there's so many out there right now that will offer this service for your brand that, it's really a no-brainer, uh, especially when you're producing, you know, fifty or two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of product. It's like, would you spend, you know, two hundred or three hundred dollars to make sure that your product is actually what you expect it to be before you put it on a ship and it goes into yeah. the containers, and then you know, months later, it shows up and it's the wrong thing, and you've lost all that time, right? Yeah, exactly. It's it's crazy that uh that 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 a lot of brands don't do that. I don't, I don't know why. It baffles me. Yeah. Well, very good, uh, very good takeaway for our listeners as well. Now, let's move into that third and final kind of tip and point that you shared with the audience. And that is, you know, warehousing your products kind of outside of the U.S. in Mexico. You talked about Tijuana. Um, this is kind of news to me. I haven't heard many people talking about this strategy. So 
I'm interested to learn more about this, Nathan. Tell me more. Yeah, totally. I mean, Section 321 is basically a practice where you can, you know, import, you can still bring your product in through Long Beach, but they're, you know, still uh, in bond and they're trucked down to Mexico to a warehouse there. So you don't pay any duties or tariffs, they're warehoused there. And then as you bring them across the border from Mexico, then you're paying duties and tariffs on those products as you bring them across. A lot of uh, e-commerce brands, if they're shipping directly to the consumers, will you know, use the law where if the package is valued at under $800, you don't have to pay any duties or tariffs on them. And so, you know, there's some big providers that do this there. Like I mentioned, uh, Baja Fulfillment, XB Fulfillment. I mean, there's a lot of them. I think even Shipmunk does this now too, but it's a great, you know, value add service that helps you alleviate some of the, you know, duty and tariff costs in your business. So if you're a business that's importing a product that has uh, a high tariff, then it's definitely worthwhile to check out to alleviate some of your cash flow. Uh, and then also if you're, you know, shipping a lot of your products direct to consumer, I think it's a no brainer to, to do this. Um, and yeah, I mean, well, you know, what's not to like, it's completely safe. There's good surf, good food, you know, good drinks. It's, uh, it's, it's, I think really just a great opportunity for e-commerce brands. Yeah. And, and you're not doing anything illegal, right? That's why your first thing is like, it's in the, the tax code, right? So right. this is completely compliant. Um, yeah. that you're able to do this and right and it's not going to change and, and even 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 if like even if you know let's say the law changed which it won't but let's say if it were to change a lot of these facilities are better than 3pls here in america anyway and oftentimes they're more affordable because they're you know obviously utilizing labor that uh, is in mexico yeah and is the strategy to bring your products in at amounts that are less than eight hundred dollars at a time uh, is that really where the value is at or? that is that is definitely where the majority of value is for you know mostly e-commerce brands that are selling through shopify direct consumer but for your audience that is you know mostly amazon the value is hey i don't have to pay you know uh let's say you have a 20 percent tariff and you're bringing in 150k of product well that's you know what like twenty five thousand dollars or so mm -hmm. you don't then have right. to pay that all up front and let's say you only need you know 20 or $30,000 of that product at your warehouse or at FBA, you know, you then can pay that um, as you bring it across the border in Mexico and your warehousing costs there are going to be, you know, oftentimes more affordable than they would be at your own warehouse uh, in America. So, I, I mean, I think it's a, it's a no brainer and at, at the least it's worth doing a cost analysis on because, you know, if it can save you uh, even, you know, 10, 15%, of your warehousing or, you know, fulfillment costs, it's, it's definitely going to increase your bottom line. Right. Oh yeah. And it turns back into that cash conversion cycle, right. That we just talked about seeing that tariff yep. as, you know, part of that, that unit cost at the end of the day. And again, being able to push that off in a legal format, uh, I mean, can definitely help your business continue to expand exponentially. So I think that's great. Yeah. My only follow-up to that, Nathan would be, you know, how do, you know, is that something that Sourceify helps brands with is kind of getting that set up or are there other people that you would recommend if people want to execute that strategy? Yeah. I mean, we can make introductions. If you want to reach out to us, we can make introductions. We don't facilitate that ourselves. Um, you know, there's a lot of companies there that do it. I, I mean, I think I, you know, mentioned a few like XB and Shipmunk and Baja Fulfillment. Um, and it's definitely worthwhile if you do it to go make a trip and see the process because it can, it's going to make you a lot more comfortable with the process. I mean, I've personally been to, you know, kind of all the providers down there and it's just really eye opening and incredible to see their process and how they operate. And then also, too, you see major brands down there that are doing this, like Taylor Guitars. I remember it was a neighbor of um, one of the big, mm. you know, third party p fulfillment providers there. Interesting. Very cool. Uh, well, th those are some great leads that you've shared with us. And so I appreciate that insight. Now, Nathan, as we begin to wrap up this episode, you know, what I love to leave the audience with is three actionable takeaways from every episode. I think you already dialed it up from the beginning. You already had three kind of points. So I'm going to reiterate everything that you kind of shared. Let me know if you if if I'm missing something from these three actionable takeaways. Um, but number one would be actionable takeaway is to create a relationship with your manufacturer. Okay. And not just seeing them as somebody that I send an email to and I click the reorder button, 
and they send the products to me. Actually spend the time jumping on the phone with that manufacturer or getting on a Zoom call or whatever it is, the more you get to know them at a personal level, the more the doors and the opportunities are going to open up for you. Um, because that's what kind of relates, you know, I'll tie this into action item number one is negotiating your payment terms with them. So if you've already crossed off the box, that's like, I have a solid relationship with my supplier. I know their family. I know their children. I know, you know, so much about them. Then you're probably at that stage where if you haven't negotiated your payment terms, we talked about a lot of creative ways to do that today. Mm -hmm. Then go and execute one of those strategies, and that is going to change the game for your business. You'll be able to launch more products more frequently. You'll be able to, you know, order higher volumes at the same time and have a better cash flow um, and save a lot of money on interest if you're taking loan payments or anything like that. Action item number two kind of parlays into that building a relationship, but re revisiting your product unit cost, right? So obviously renegotiating your unit cost with the manufacturer can be possible. But the other strategy is on a regular basis, and I think you mentioned maybe it's every one to two years, you go out and you just kind of do a new cost analysis, right? You reach out to sourcing experts like yourself that have these relationships with manufacturers and you say, hey, what could I get? Here's the volume that we're doing. Here's how much we would be ordering. Uh, what could we get our product at? That allows you to kind of get a better understanding of what the market price point might be for your products. And I think the ultimate recommendation there is if you can save 10% on that product unit cost, that's when that decision point to say, hey, maybe it is worth switching. It's that 10% inflection point there. Yep. Then last, last but not least is a uh, third takeaway is start warehousing your products right outside of the US in Mexico. And, and we talked about that. It's going to allow you to save, um, you know, or push off those tariffs to a later date. And if you're importing um, your items at quantities or units at less than $800 in value, you don't even need to pay those tariffs as well. So imagine how game changing that can be to your business if you've got a 20% tariff. Um, and Nathan did a great job. He shared some of the, the company recommendations um, that he would recommend to set something up like that. Um, use them as a 3PL. Again, game changing for your business in terms of cash flow management and also saving costs in general with 3PL warehousing of your product. So those are my three actionable takeaways. Nathan, is there anything I missed or anything else you want to elaborate on there? I think you hit the nail on the head, Josh. That, that sounds great. Awesome. All right, Nathan, as we wrap things up today, I love to ask every guest three similar questions. So the first question is, what is the most influential book that you've read and why? Uh, honestly, it's got to be the four hour work week. I think sometimes, you know, people think it's a little kind of cliche and Tim Ferriss has gotten a lot popular. But, you know, I read that book, uh, I think my freshman year of, of college and it, it really kind of changed my mindset you know it talks more about optimizing your time you know doing a analysis of how you're spending your money and also how easy it is to you know start a business right and i think in today's world it's so important to understand how you're spending your time and also kind of understanding well how much do i have to earn to you know, either own or live the life that I want to live. Right. And so I think it's a really good way of analyzing and understanding um, both your life and your business and your time, which I think are, you know, hugely important to, to any entrepreneur. Yeah, I 100% echo that in terms of that book being a good mindset shift in terms of re uh, better understanding, like what is possible when you really pull back the curtains and you, you focus on what matters most at any given point in your, in your work week. Yeah. Let's move on to question number two here. What is a, a new or productivity tool or software that you might've discovered um, that has helped you in your business that you might see as a game changer going forward? Yeah. I mean, this one I kind of struggled with a little bit because I'm super basic when it comes to productivity and all that stuff. Like 
you know, I, I, I barely use Slack. I actually use WhatsApp for, for some of my businesses, like literally just WhatsApp messaging. And I think what's more important in terms of productivity is I always ask myself and, and our team is how are we aligning our, you know, incentives with our goals. Right. And I think my favorite line is, you know, show me the incentives and I'll show you the outcomes. And so whenever it comes to, you know, contractors, team members, factories, whatever it may be, you know, I always think about that mindset of how can we align our incentives to, you know, really reach our, our goals. Awesome. Is there any formal system that you set up those incentive structures for? Are they as simple as like having Google Docs that are published, you know? Um, I mean, most of it is around like, like, for example, you know, I know a lot of brands listening, they spend money on ads, right? Whether it be through Amazon or Facebook or whatever. And so they either have an in-house media buyer or work with a contractor. And, you know, you want to spend a certain amount of money every month and you want to meet a certain CPA every month. And so I just, you know, create brackets of saying, hey, you know, if you reach this spend and this CPA, you're going to earn an additional X amount of, of, of dollars, right? That, that will mm -hmm. pay you out. And so aligning our growth and our performance with that team member, I think is huge. And I think a lot of people just overlook it and say, Oh, I'm going to pay you a, you know, flat fee. Like a lot of agencies are like, Oh, I'm going to pay you, you know, charge you a flat, you know, 10% of ad spend or whatever it may be. And I'll say, look, you know, you can charge us 5% of ad spend at this rate, but you can charge us, you know, 15% at this rate. So I think really creating yeah. a sliding scale with that is a huge win-win. Yeah. That that's a great takeaway. Um, Real good golden nugget there to leave the audience with. So yep. the last and final question, Nathan, is who is somebody that you admire or respect the most in the e-commerce space that other people should be following and why? I would say Dylan Whitman. He used to ran, run Brand Value Accelerator, which was a big Shopify Plus brand. And Dylan now runs, I'm going to blank, I'm going to mispronounce the name, but it's called Inveterate. It's a membership subscription app for Shopify brands. And it just helps really create community for your brand and also i think alleviate and help a lot of cash flow concern for your brand because you have a monthly uh, membership that you're charging your community and i've seen so many brands have a lot of success with it and dylan is just such a thought leader in the e-commerce ecosystem that's awesome that's definitely one people should go check out and follow dylan nathan uh this has been an excellent episode you've shared a lot of knowledge with us um, where can people reach out to you and learn more about Sourceify and, and, you know, hire you and your services? Yeah. Uh, our domain just sourceify.com was an expensive one. So hopefully, you know, you find it. And, uh, for me personally, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and Twitter. So if you just search Nathan Resnick, R-E-S-N-I-C-K, uh, I'll be there and feel free to connect with me. Awesome. Well, Nathan, thanks so much for sharing value and your advice and, and recommendations on this podcast today and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Visit ecombreakthrough.com for more information. If you've enjoyed today's episode, the best way you can show your appreciation is by clicking the subscribe button and quickly leaving a review. See you again next time.